Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Hey, you. Do you want to make music with test equipment? Fancy making the next number one with a 1960s adding machine? Well, you'll positively hate Signal Sounds, who don't sell incredibly esoteric landfill. They only retail the most up-to-date, compatible and interesting weird inspiring equipment based on ideas of the past which you could hope to own and indeed with which you can use to create your own totem of future landfill synthesis heart banging restocks are in from joe mox vermona random sources mighty search tkb yes your signal sounds bought rig could be just as challenging as trying to ring a tune from babbage's difference engine whilst also having novel features such as warranty and jack sockets Buy your weird, amazing kit with jack sockets from signalsounds.com. That website is signalsounds.com. Oh yeah, friend chops. How the devil are you? I hope you're okay because here we are with Heinbach. Yes, it's finally time. A very, very, very wonderful human is here virtually in the studio with us. And if you are not familiar with his oeuvre, Heinbach is a German... YouTube, I don't want to say YouTuber first and foremost because Heinbach is a musician first and foremost. He's been active for many, many, many years, does a great deal of work doing composition for theatre um, shows. Obviously, it's something that's been a bit difficult to do, but he is a very, very well um, honed recording artist, many albums under his belt, and many live shows too creates a great deal of high concept work and stuff that uses analog tape to such a gorgeous effect, including, and something we talk about, destruction loops, which is taking the whole kind of William Bozinski kind of shredding analog tape over a long, long, long period while the tape loops concept, but using uh, hateful comments taken from YouTube and dictated onto tape by the person they were posted to. Um, amazing. And of course, like the latter things, which is the reason I was talking to Heinbach, is landfill totems, which is taking towers of his test equipment and making music from them, literally making these kind of almost human forms from machines and making them sing, you know, completely beautiful and bonkers. Um, and then very latterly, Landfill Totems has led to a Spitfire audio library instrument that you can buy, which is just out recently and part of the creation of which we talk about. But yeah, for me, I kind of got to know of Heinbach, obviously through YouTube, which is sort of unavoidable given that I make videos too. Um, and so that's kind of what I, something I wanted to talk to him about because he makes videos about his process and the equipment he uses and has a just wonderfully open-minded approach to gear. He is a major proponent of Seat Lombard equipment, uh, which we talk about in the podcast. Extremely esoteric, wooden, 
colourful, bonkers equipment um, made uh, with a by a very creative mind who we talk about in the podcast called Peter Blasser, who I've mentioned here before. Um, and But that sort of, I think Heimbach gets known for his mad test equipment stuff, which is literally making music with test equipment, devices from the 60s and 70s and 80s, which were designed for lab purposes, being appropriated for the purpose of making electronic music itself. Obviously not a new concept. It's basically what the Radiophonic Workshop were doing, where they didn't have access to synthesizers, so they had to just cobble them together from, you know, bandpass filters and oscillators and whatever they had, and obviously lots and lots of lovely tape. So today is an opportunity to just have a very warm and fuzzy conversation with a person who is just deeply warm and fuzzy. Heinbach has this just wonderful voice. Uh, and we, we do actually talk about voices. Um, his sort of rich kind of um, audiobook voice was deeply soothing for me to spend a little bit of time uh, talking to. And he is just a wonderfully warm, engaged and interesting person to talk to. He's very good at explaining his process. And I, I mean, this is sort of sounds patronising, but it's just very, very impressive how lucid and, and verbose he is, given that he is not conversing in his native language, which is um, something we do talk about as well from the, uh, obviously Heimbach got into the whole YouTube thing and does you, you know, YouTube's in English. Um, and I think initially that was a struggle. It was a challenge to um, try and speak clearly about complex, deep, you know, difficult pieces of equipment and difficult processes that you're trying to articulate and then not doing it in your native language. It's very impressive. And this conversation, by the way, begins, as many do, in medias res. I like to just start these things kind of rolling um, and get straight to the good stuff. Uh, we were talking about the Ensonique Fismo, because when I was recording this, which I do through this like clever app called Squadcast, um, I can see um, Stefan. He's like this tiny figure, but in this huge Berlin room, you know, with big, like beautiful high ceilings and surrounded by equipment and bathed in this gorgeous sort of purple light. So imagine a very tiny, tiny hindback in beautiful purple sort of surrounds. But speaking of purple, he was flanked by the FISMO. And so that's what we began talking about. Uh, so when, when we begin, that's what was up for discussion, the beautiful wavetable thing, which I, we can't work out if it had analog or digital filters. Please leave a comment. But first, ladies and gents, I've got to get real with you. Uh, I've got to pay the bills. Uh, so let's have a couple of beautiful, interesting ads from awesome people. And then we will talk to Stefan. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Tiny Crush Mixing. Do you need your tracks mixing? to an exceptional, uncompromising and mind-bending standard? Do your stems require the ultimate knitting together by someone who is both a fellow producer, a modular head, a label mate of Terry Riley, Amulets and Colleen, a person who conceived and developed the 4MS spherical wavetable navigator module, mastered in acoustics and signal processing, and worked at MIT, Caltech and Stanford, including work on the Nobel Prize-winning scientific project behind the first detection of gravitational waves. 
I'm deadly serious. This is actually a real person and you can hire them to mix your tracks or album. His name is Hugo R.A. Paris and he is an artist just like you. Hugo dances the line between art, science and creativity needed to make your mixes shine. So if you have a project that you need a creative space wizard's touch on, there is no one quite like Hugo. And for one month, you can get 10% of your first mix project by mentioning Why We Bleep. So book your next mix at tinycrushmixing.com. That is tinycrushmixing.com. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for creative and curious people like you. Offering thousands of inspiring video-based classes on a multitudinous array of topics, from illustration to graphic design, music production, animation, writing, film, productivity. The list is long, but the classes are short. With most classes under 60 minutes, they'll fit any schedule. I occasionally make videos, so I was curious to check out Building a Filmmaking Career, How to Find Success as a Video Creator by YouTuber, Filmmaker and all-round good egg, Simon Cade. Covering such juicy topics as the easiest way to get paid as a filmmaker, it's an all-round comprehensive crash course in making a living as a videographer. No mean feat and no working for exposure. So if you're curious to try Skillshare for yourself, and you should be for it is less than $10 per month with a yearly sub, I have a deal for you. The first 1,000 people who click the link in my description will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium. So click the link and learn yourself some new skills. And with that, even though it is the first time he has been on the show, it is truly good to have him back. When you go minimal with the synthesizer and start to use all the modulation, there's it's just a richness in tone in there. And I mean, my most favorite wavetable-based synthesizer is the Waldorf PPG. So the Waldorf PPG is like uh, the first time I heard that and played it, I was blown away. And I've been hunting, I've been chasing that that <laughs> that high ever since. And this has a similar aspect. It's, it doesn't sound like the Waldorf at all, but it has this musicality to it. So wavetables can can be can be incredibly boring sometimes. They can just be overwhelming. If you've just packed too many in there, it's just like, ah, again, the the choice of the wavetables and the way you can sequence them, and how they interact once you sequence them, that's so important in creating like a wavetable synthesizer that's actually interesting to me, I find. Yeah. Yeah. Also with the PPG, that's an instrument that I've, I know that does have analog filters. And it's, uh -huh. What is it about that instrument? Why is it so captivating? I think it's like these really low resolution wavetables that have lots of aliasing. And then you use the filters to take that away. But every time you open the filter, you get these rich glittering tones. And the closest I've gotten to that is the Piston Honda Mark I by The Harvestman, or now Industrial Music, I think. 
uh, and that had exactly that wavetable sound. Not so much with the version 2 and version 3, there they got better sounding and much more featured and all this stuff was added, but not that grainy, lovely aliasing of those simple signs in there that absolutely mm. not sign. They're like, yeah, like a digital 8-bit interpretation of a sign. And oh my God, that's such a great tone. And it's one of the modules I've kept the longest. So I had one of those and I sold it and I, I actually do regret it. I look yeah. back at old videos where, you know, it's me scanning through the wave, you know, the wave tables and it, can you talk a bit, of, I mean, this idea of sort of texture and there's definitely something in your music where I, I've spoken to this name drop. I mean, I've spoken to Sarah Devachi before as well on the same subject because it's, you, you two feel like kindred spirits in the, uh, the question that I asked her and I want to ask you is, is texture more important than melody to you? Texture is what I start from usually because I'm very synesthetic and uh, I feel musical textures in my fingertips. So when I get a texture that is exciting, my fingertips tingle. And, really? Uh, you literally are like synesthesia but yeah just feeling. just a little bit and it's something that i noticed especially when i start talking about sounds i start making this so to <laughs> to feel them and then i feel the sound it's really there so that's uh i thought it's pretty normal so for me that's mm. how i basically am but this is like i feel the texture and i like textures that have a grip to them and give you something to go into and then for me, once I have gotten my grip on that texture, I find there's all the melodies and all the harmonies already contained. Because basically, yeah, texture in the end is a combination of so many tones and overtones that you can find everything in there. And that's part of why I love, like, I've got such a incredible crush on <laughs> test equipment bandpass filters because those enable this sweeping through very fine like you get a 48 decibel filter with a really sharp bandpass and you can f you can discover all these different hidden sounds in between the overtones and just at the cusp and then the filter itself starts to like interact with that it's just there's something that feels to me both like I'm a musician, but right now I'm a sound explorer and mm. I can explore these hidden worlds of sound. The, the sense of feeling and the sense of having a kind of physical reaction to sounds is interesting. And I don't, I'm trying to think if I feel the same way, if I do, I don't know if I do. I, I think I am more auditory in that mm -hmm. sense. I know that people can have like, you know, primary sort of, um, you know, mechanisms in their brain. So some people are more visual and some people, you know, like I talked to my, when I watch a film with my wife and um, she will, she will never remember any of the lines, but she says, I remember how I felt the whole way through, you know, whereas I will always remember the quotes. I'll be able to like quote a film and like incessant one of those annoying people who quotes films like all the time, like ha ha movie quote. But it's, it is interesting to see those modes in action because it really seems to be driving your, your music in that sense. And it does, you know, listening to your music, it feels truly halfway between texture and melody, you know, especially when, you know, you've got you know, disintegration loops, which is, is literally 
turning a melody into a texture. It's like you can only end up with texture after you've scraped it to, you know, to death. I don't know if you want to speak to sort of your relationship with equipment as it has changed over the years, and particularly with reference to your gravitation around analog gear. I I have to think about what was my first studio. I think that was where we recorded with our band in our yeah my parents' cellar, and what we had there was basically a two-track cassette recorder and a mixer and uh, yeah guitars, bass, and all that stuff. And that I upgraded at some point to Cool Edit Pro. And uh, uh, then I got an audio interface that could go digitally and suddenly, oh, the world is open and uh, multi-tracking, no tapers. Yeah, lucky. Oh, done with tapers. Oh, <laughs> can finally sound clean, which was the mark of sounding pro at that time. And I found myself very much liking editing audio. So instead of... Even at that time, I had like, at some point, I got a huge creamware DSP system. I think it was my first major real sound card. And there were all these synthesizers. There was even an early modular in there. But I mainly used it for mixing and audio processing because I just loved recording a signal and then messing it up with effects. And that was a workflow I've truly, truly enjoyed, more so than programming MIDI. So, and entering notes in a piano roll. So, MIDI is something that I sometimes indulge in. Right now, I don't think I have anything under MIDI control here, except for maybe a TR-707, why I, 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 I can now do stuff like that because I've got the TR-707, which can take, uh, or can send triggers out and can send dinsing to the 606. <sighs> and... That, and then I've got MIDI, so I theoretically could clock things to MIDI, but I don't. <laughs> it's just not <laughs> something I do. But yeah, so this process of taking audio and messing it up and looking, breaking up the audio and seeing what's inside is something that has interested me forever. And when I discovered tape, I realized that I could break up audio so much better. I could find even more in there because the resolution of a... Of a, an, of a quarter-inch tape recorded at 15 IPS is so much higher than digital once you start pitching it down. And in that process, mm. you can see and hear all these new interesting things that you hadn't noticed before. Simplest thing, the piano overtones, they become uh, the beatings between those overtones. They become all the melodies and all the harmonies that I think, oh, this is, it plays itself. Just have to listen. And there it is there. Slows down time and it creates a bigger space. And when I first did that with uh, Nagra, I knew this is something that I really need to keep. And uh, I, yeah, from that point onward, I worked my way around tape and the tape workflow. And then, of course, it made me produce faster and faster because I didn't I stopped multi tracking. I just went for. I just basically wrote a track and then spent hours or a day rehearsing it and then I laid it down in one take and mm -hmm. maybe would do like a splice in or something or one overdub but nothing more and that was so freeing because suddenly I did 10 tracks where before I did like one track in 10 days so 10 tracks 
Like it's it's so much faster and quicker. And of course, some tracks get lost or messed up in the mix, but that's a price to pay for doing something fast and having fun all the time in the process. And the music gets better for me when I work in analog simply because I limit options. Limiting all the options is good because I tend, I found myself with these massive multi-track projects overthinking, overproducing, and not getting to the point of everything. So um, with an analog workflow working directly to tape, everything is faster and it's more fun in the end. <laughs> the, I read, um, I don't know if you saw, but I read a, uh, a Reddit post, which someone had dredged up an Aphex Twin quote where he was talking about uh, Player Pro, the tracker that he used. I don't know if you ever used trackers, but the, mm. he, um, he was bringing it up because he was like, the best thing about Player Pro is that it has um, properly implemented destructive um, sample editing so that you could you know, make EQ changes to the sample and bake them in accurately and instantly at that point and therefore free he said the good thing is it both it freed up cpu and of course this is he was using player pro when he was writing his really complex music for like drugs around 2000 pre-2001 and he said well one part of it was that you free up cpu and it was at a time where computers weren't so powerful but the main point was that you you get into the headspace of making destructive changes and it forces you to commit, um, which is, is exactly what you're describing in, in the analog domain where you're making, you know, playing, playing things down to like a two track and, or a one track in some instances, I'm sure. And it's, and you've got no choice, but to make it do all the sort of front load the, the process and then finish the actual track itself. Once you've done all of this work to set up, it's a really interesting approach because it's, it to me, it, personally speaking as well, it speaks to the fact that these are the, the kinds of things that I've been trying to do with, with live equipment as well by just doing live jams. Of course, I do have everything synchronized. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. I've sort of never, it never occurred to me what, how obviously better that aspect is. But I suppose... Yeah, I don't know what the question is, really. It's sort of, um, you're, you're never tempted to do kind of you no know, MIDI looping or other forms of looping and involve the digital, do you know what I mean? Are you, because your music, it feels that the loop sort of, is it part of it that the loop should slip and phase? Would you be averse to it being in time? It's absolutely a part of it. And that's why I build uh, together with Brambos Gauss. So the looper for iOS that, uh, doesn't care for beat BPM basically. So it just, there's no end point and no start point that you can edit. There's no like grid, but you record something and then it drifts, you record over it and everything just drifts. But then you can make that rhythm using an internal sequencer. So you get a sequence that will always change and will never be the same. And that's something that's very important to me to create something that's lively. And that's basically, Gauss is basically based on my life patch, how I played with the Seat Lombardi Coco Quantos and the Menke uh, uh, more voltage memory for the longest time. And to, and Gauss is sort of like the, like the hyper version of that. 
software enables even more choices and longer sampling times. But what it does, it enables you to take anything, any sound and set it adrift and let it sing, sequence it, make it music in a lovely way that always takes a bit of the unsung nature of instruments like the Coco Quantos or uh, tape loops. So yeah, nothing ever repeats itself. Mm. And that's so oh. much more interesting to me than like midi tight, 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 tight looping. Mm. Yeah, totally. And if, 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 especially for music that's meditative in, in some way. And it, it, I don't know, it's such a simple thing. I was listening to the, the hate loops as well. Um, I heard it before I was re-listening to it and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting hearing how, I mean, with on that particularly that the, it's not the same, you know, if you had reels of tape, they're not all going at the same speed. They don't repeat at the same sort of speed. And so it's just, it does create this. Yeah. It's, it's basically your, it, the music is so unafraid to take have silence in it and to have the sort of the gaps in between the notes, which is something that is so with MIDI equipment, so tempting to fill all of those, <laughs> look at those gaps that are just ripe for me to push the little lights inside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it, it sort of MIDI gear seems to, I don't know if there's a button there, it demands to be pushed, but, but your processes here are very much, um, it feels like they're more abstracted. The, there's, in a sense that your hands are partly tied behind your back. So once you've set something up, I guess you just have to stand back and you don't, you're almost limiting your ability to fill it with sound. And I mean, with that said though, you do run two quadroverbs in series. So yeah, fill things filling. up also. I mean, <laughs> if I can do silence, I'm always happy. Silence is one of the hardest tools to, to use in music. It's one of the most powerful tools. But to someone who just is happy being bathed in sound, to have silence, that's always like, it's always a scary proposition. So I encourage myself to go there as much as, as, much as possible. And with something like the hate loops where you have four, or was it, I think it was th three different machines looping at the same time, all there can be, seconds where there's just a little bit of tapers and nothing and of course with that with the hate loops of course there was the thing that you had all these insults and uh, hate comments and they would suddenly talk to each other <laughs> the way that uh, the way that they shifted from dude you are a welder to ah that's just at, at some <laughs> when you i listen to the whole piece so I listened to the whole piece through while it while it was created. And after that, I was like, I was done. So this was very cathartic. I was completely wow. This was amazing. But during the time, it was also torturous. Then it became funny. Then it was torturous again. Then it became funny again. So you're going through all these emotions when you listen to this live. And I put them up on Bandcamp now, so you can completely. Mm -hmm. I wonder if like how, if pe I think some people do it, like listening through the whole. I think it's 16 hours, like of all destruction loops, one to four, <laughs> and it's it is such a meditative experience. I find, and I have. So especially the last one, the second to last one, which 
I don't know. I think we were then 12 hours or something in that space. And in the end, we decided it's one o'clock. Okay, let's let's just kill it with fire. And we burned the loops. And that sounds, <laughs> you can hear glorious in the end, which is absolutely fun. Um, no, but in general, the more silence I can put in in music, the the more happy I am. It just makes me feel, ah, I've, solved that challenge and this moment of silence is something that's always special there's uh makes the music louder in a way mm. yeah absolutely it does uh not least uh if you're um what's he called he's that film uh british film director christopher nolan he he uses silence in a sort of um a warfare kind of way because um, I believe the the whole like you know Dolby sort of level standards are an average, so that means that you're allowed to make absolutely no sound at all and make a sound that is far higher than than sort of you know would be considered normal and right. And that's why I, I went to see uh, Dunkirk and I had bloody my ears were ringing by the end of the film, mm -hmm. um, and it's some of the gunshots I think are like like way too loud but that he does it because he's had full silence beforehand um mm -hmm. i have talked to some a live engineer who will remain nameless um who sort of engineered a very very large number of very famous acts and he's like i've used that trick as well <laughs> if you have absolutely nothing then you can have you know 115 db bass for for a peak you know for a very brief moment um of course, you played in lots of places. Like I was watching your, um, it was, uh, oh, I forget the name of the uh, basic electricity. Um, mm -hmm. What is your, can you talk about sort of your, it'd be interesting to talk about your live setups and then also the kind of the spaces themselves and, and how they influence what you do. But what is your sort of, you know, if you're playing live, what is the bare, basically the bare minimum gear that you would give yourself and what, what actual like roles do you give yourself to do? What tasks do you assign to yourself and what do you relinquish? The absolute basic minimum is uh, I've got it over there and that's basically I got the monkey voltage memory. I have the Seat Lombarda Coco Quantos and Seat Lombarda Z-Drux. This is the absolute minimum with which I can work. And if I were to add a little more, I would add some tape loops. So I've got a bit more colors in there. So tape loops that I've previously recorded and put, put those into the Coco Quantos. Then I would add a microphone to put my voice into the Coco Quantos. And uh, then I, th I see you can <laughs> see where that goes. I just put other things into the Coco Quantos and drift away with that or make it rhythm because you get all the variations in that. Same as with Gauss, you can make the Coco Quantos work in dance context if you want to because you can do similar tricks with the modulation of the unsynced loops where they become something that's rhythmical. And then if I were to play a more club gig, I would either bring the Seat Lombard Plum Butter, which I've played a lot together. So basically all Seat Lombard setup almost. Mm. And, or I, I recently discovered the uh, Pulsar 23. Yeah. And this is so in such a nice contrast in sound because it has a very different sound to the Seat Lombard. It sounds very more like metal. It sounds like bashing metal. <laughs> and I love that 
bashing metal sound of it. So I played a show with that like five days after getting it and I played a show in Poland in a in the Bialystok uh, Philharmonie with that and it was so fun to interpatch it with the Seattle Lombard and to add this clanging, almost kind of trap sounding <laughs> industrial sounds in this very nice philharmonic. So I've fallen in love with that also as a sound design tool. So right now this is my setup. It's kind of bordering at the point like this is hard. I don't know if I can get this in a carry-on. <laughs> That's the main problem with the setup. Now I think the Lyra is too heavy to, uh, the, the, not the Lyra, the Pulsar is too Pulsar, heavy to yeah. put into a carry-on. So yeah, I might have to do the horrible thing and stick it uh, uh, in the, in the what's it called? Wait, in the hold? In the hold. Which I really don't want to do. But... Well, you could just put it all, you know, just get a laptop and just, just pre-record everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I started my whole YouTube channel basically by trying to get better at playing Seat Lombard and using the camera as an audience. So this is like meshed with me by now. These instruments are part of my whole journey of how I express myself. And yeah so this is this is my my life set basically and what i bring and i just add different things to that mm. sometimes it's a percussion instrument also which i like i've been using kalimbas and embiras forever and i've been using aztec death whistles and shows it really depends also of course as you asked earlier uh, on the space so when it's something that's very reverberant i don't use a reverb i usually have a reverb on that because everything fits on this like I made a crappy wooden pedal board and I just put everything in the in this cheap Samsonite simple uh coffer. It's a coffer, uh where you put things in to a case. travel. Case, yeah. <laughs> it's not even a case, it's like coffin of a kind. Not, not a coffin, it's like like the regular thing, like a trolley. So like a trolley that you mm. that like a, a simple thing. So um yeah, so I put everything in there. And then uh, it's it's easy to travel with that and easy to fly with that. And it's get always funny looks every time it gets checked. So I really appreciate to have something that has so many colors and there's so many colors that I can fit with me. Yeah, in basically regular cabin luggage. That's the mm. way I was looking for, regular cabin luggage. Because I come from a time like I I toured with the Rhodes and the Juno 60, oh an MPEG SVT and a Fender Precision Bass. <laughs> that is, no, those are going in the hold is the problem. It's like, yeah, so to have something that's now just, so, that's so simple and lightweight and always enables me to go to emotional depths because that's something... At some point, I was in a band and there was so much stuff that was basically pre-recorded or like uh, a laptop, like for VST stuff. I was like, I if I had to like, if something terrible happened, I wouldn't have an instrument to express myself. So I really thought this is, this is horrible. I need an instrument that can go to emotional depths and the Seattle Lombard instruments can do that absolutely in electronic music without any, without much uh, you have to add. 
how do you say, like if you're doing presumably quite improvised shows, especially with very idiosyncratic gear, although of course you, you will know the Coca Contest back to front now. It's like, how do you ensure that you have a good show? How do you ensure that, because are they improvised entirely or do you have, to what extent do you know what's going to happen? There's two things. First thing I try to do is root myself in the space. So I try to, I, I watch artists that play before me to a point. Sometimes I take a dictaphone and sample them if I hear something I like and then feed that in the Coco Quantus. So I already continue the story, basically, bring a bit nice. of the previous act with me. Sometimes uh, there's one show I played in a church and um, I put my instruments on the altar, which was very, very strange. But yeah, that's quite appropriate somehow. Um, then there was uh, then, but then there was a piano there, and I thought, "Oh, there's a piano. I'm just gonna not." I'm, I I started the show by, I played the piano, sampled that again into a dictaphone, ran it through the stuff, and started from there. So I always try to find something that roots me in the space. Nice. But that, and when I've done that, that helps. And then I've got this the emotional arc of the performance. I've got to plot it plotted out. So I know this much of calm, this much, there it starts to break up and there it starts to go pulsing and pumping and then break it down again. So I plot internally like these three act structures or five act structures like in a theater play of how I want the performance to be. And then I've got these presets, which are my tape loops. And I bring, uh, for normal performance, I bring like maybe 12 to 16. And then I choose from those usually four or five for the whole performance. So it's a multiple choice way of like, okay, do I take this, go to this road, go to this road, this road. And these are just things I add into the whole mix. And then they're always different because I don't, I, I like to not clear the sampling buffer on the Coco Quantus. So I always have little pieces of previous loops in there. And in one of the best shows were when I just at the end, I would release the the quasi, the, the back to record, back to start, because you can sync to back to start with the trigger. Uh, and then there would be all these things, all these little mashups of the performance, like a, like, you know, uh, you're, what you're supposed to see at the end of your life, like your whole life flashing by, <laughs> you get the whole evening like flashing you by. And this is like, I'm like, this is wonderful. This is when I first discovered this is like, wow, this is such a storytelling tool. Because in the end, I try to tell stories with my music. It's in that way, it's not functional music, it's storytelling music. And I ensure that I and people get a good show by practicing, 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 by, if I can, adding visuals by my wonderful neighbor, uh, Orca. She also does my videos oftentimes, uh, on my music videos. And I employ a compressor <laughs> on the end so I don't huh. kill anyone's ears. So I've got a, what's it called? Auto, I think it's the Boom. Mm. Is it the boom? What's the name of the company? Or BAM? It's boom, BAM, or BIM, isn't it? Yeah, then it's One boom. Of those. Then it's the boom. boom. So I use that as a very easy to travel with simple compressor that's also a filter to take off some of the noisy edge of the Coco Quantos. That's been a, such a 
good tool in gluing everything together and especially because you are gonna mess up. I'm messing up is like something that's part of the thing, but it's bad if the messing up is like massive resonances or like yeah. feedback, something that kills everybody and get, or gives them shocks. Like that's something you I don't want. So I use this to limit basically the output. What, uh, can you talk a bit about Peter Blasser? Ah, he's here yes. in Berlin. Is he what right now? Yeah, he's he's uh, he's uh, here. He moved here. He moved to Berlin. Yeah, women hanging know. out. Oh my god! Can you <laughs> tell me about? I find him a fascinating character. Beyond fascinating, I think he's he's one of the sort of most quixotic and sort of maybe that's quixotic's the wrong term, but he's the most enigmatic and sort of uh, like odd, captivating, interesting sort of surreal, intense kind of people I've uh, in the music technology industry that I've ever seen. You know, I don't think there's another, I really can't think uh, other than the chap who does, is it Geiskis? Uh, how does he pronounce Geis. Geis, Geis, Geis. Geis, Geis, Geis. Oh, wait, how do I, I think it's Geis. <laughs> Him. I think he may be, he, looking at his equipment, he may be a little bit like Peter as well. But, you know, I've seen some of the you know, Peter's performances and I watched the short film with Peter, you know, and he goes into the cave and he's <laughs> yeah. like setting off smoke bombs. Yeah. And, and I mean, can you just, yeah, I would just be interested on what your take on is on him. Oh, he's, uh, he's an, an amazing guy, I think. And I've, is, the amount of knowledge that he has and the amount of uh, very artful and non and also very pragmatic in the way that he does things. I mean, everything that he built is, of course, built upon things that he did before and that are art pieces and circuits that he designed as art pieces. And there is a way that he manages to create these very organic musical instruments that comes from this long art and uh, yeah, this long art career basically. And then he has a knowledge of so many things that it's, I'm every time I talk to him is really, I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting a course, you know, but not like because he's lecturing, it's just so interesting. So we talked about, about uh, chips, for example. So like the chips, the different, what to pick different chips and what that chip is and what does that chip do? And, but not in the sense of using musical chips, but just like, oh, I, I took this chip because it was available and looked, it looked interesting and had all the things. So I tried it and like, okay, it works. So it works for me. It sounds, sounds like it is, but uh, I can do the same thing with anything. Now I can, if I have like a programming thing, I can program the exact same sound on that thing. It's like, whoa, really? Yeah, I, it's possible. And uh, that is for me so fascinating how Un, what's it called? How, how pragmatic and direct he is in the way he thinks about his instruments and his sound, and uh, that it and that they produce. And he's not like you only need like the this special and this special, this special. No, it's more like how just put it differently together. So it's very feels very real in that regard. There's this, um, 
I mean, some people like read the website and they're like, what is this? I've got no idea. <laughs> this is uh, very much. But once you step into the realm of uh, what Peter means, it's everything makes sense and nothing feels like it's superfluous or now I'm trying to pronounce a word that I don't ever superfluous. say. Obfuscating? Obfuscating. Obf obfuscating. 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 Yeah. So now I got yeah. obfuscating. Good. I was trying that for a, for a, I was trying to say that in a video and I tried it so much, then I couldn't get it right. So I just said <laughs> something else. But it, it doesn't, it's absolutely not that. It's more part of a whole system of connect connections. And mm -hmm. you can see these connections blooming like mushrooms across his machines. And it's feel like you're diving again into a narrative. That's something that I find very, very beautiful. And I'm looking forward to see what he does in Berlin. I mean, he's uh, mm. working together with Darren from Patchpoint and uh, who's been building Seattle Lombard in license now for, I don't know, uh, quite yeah, a long yeah. time. And yeah, it's also I've fun. Darren discovered Seattle Lombard uh, when he organized this synthesizer meet up. And I came there and brought my Seattle Lombard with me. I was like, oh, what is this? Because Darren was search at that time mostly. And then he's like, oh, okay. Ah. And then suddenly it came to be that Darren would build Seat Lombard. And uh, yeah, it's such a lovely connection. And yeah, it, I'm I'm trying to to make time to to yeah to to hang out, go maybe meet like outside, uh, socially distance, and the flu. Of course, or something. yeah. But it's yeah. um, I've been into Patchpoint. I, I think I met him because it's. I met the very beautiful dog as well. They've got like mm -hmm. cute little sausage dog. First. But that was actually the, what's the dog called? First. First. Mm -hmm. Not as in like number one, but something else. What is I think that? it's like first is like Duke. Duke. That's right. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, he had all the stuff and he was there. He's kind of there in like a tank top and he had a file and he was like working on some, you know, all the Seat Lombard gear is made of wood and it's really beautiful wood. So he was kind of filing it and I was chatting to him and um, and I had to go on a Croco Qantas and mm -hmm. I was like, and I must say like within five minutes, I actually was like, oh, this sounds really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> something, and I had something where I'd like took a little film of it and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, this I get, like I, I this is starting to make sense to me. Whereas, you know, I look at, um, is it plum butter where it's like I'm a psycho ge social geographic map of yeah. the cities of Baltimore and Cleveland is yeah. is permanently burned into my mind from yeah. having read that I was like not many people describe their circuits as a psycho geographical map of the cities of Baltimore and Cleveland that's a very unique take on on circuit design <laughs> you know um, and the sort of the way that the you know that the relationship between the blocks of the of the synth are the related to the way that you know, the city of Baltimore and Cleveland interface with one another. And it's, mm. there's a kind of a, a creative association that's sort of wild mm. and then, you know, un, unprecedented. Nobody I am aware of does this where well, it's kind of art synth, you know, not, not in the same way. Um, and also the fact that you just, when you see him interviewed, it's, it's not an act. Like that man is thinking things on a different level. He's like a profoundly unique and interesting person. So I'm always fascinated by him. I didn't know that he'd moved to Berlin and I hope 
yeah, I hope to meet him one day. Yeah, um, probably when the world goes back to normal and we have another super booth and stuff. Mm. Yeah, that would I be. hope so. Yeah, yeah, I would like to see him there, just sort of walking yeah. around. Um, But one thing yeah. that's very important about his instrument is it's something that's like, I mean, that's he's he's of course very avant-garde. But the whole thing about master slave, this discussion that came up, I think last year, you know, the whole uh, topics is instruments like the plumbutter. Uh, they are always already uh, they go both directions. So the it's never it's post uh, post master slave instruments already. Because the output is also an input of the triggers and stuff. So they influence each other and you get uh, feedback relationships of the two. So, and when people say like, yeah, how do I sync this? Or I can say people, more people have said slave this to my door. It's like, nah, that's not how this works. No, it's not, 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 no. This is something where every, where every, Every output and the input, they give each other something. So on the plumbator, for mm. example, and that's something I found so refreshing and that encourages you to experiment, of course, more and to patch everything wildly. And suddenly there are sounds in there. I discovered that the plumbator could do perfect dubstep basses at some point. And I was like, what is this? I never heard this sound from this <laughs> instrument. And that's from being really go, really going deep into the plumbutter because once i mean many sounds that i made in the beginning and many others do in the beginning are boom chick, psh, boom chick, pff, or boom with like off kilter very very simple rhythms but it's a completely semi-modular synthesizer with hidden worlds of sound that are just waiting to be discovered. So there's, I at some point I stopped using it at all for the drums. And they used it as a mixer, sound processor, droner, and yeah, making dubstep basses. So there's really so much in there once you start to go beyond what, uh, yeah, what the first impulses are. It's, mm. oh. Hmm. I need to, oh, I just need to come back to Berlin. That's the problem. And then if I spend a little time in patch point, you know, I'm sure I could acquaint myself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, it'd be interesting to talk a bit about this whole YouTube thing, you know, that whole, that whole chestnut, which, um, you know, you've been doing it. I was looking back on your videos. There's a sort of moment where, you know, there's like one video where you explain your live setup and it's the first video where, I actually see your face in the thumbnail um, mm -hmm. and it's sort of, I don't know if you could talk about the sort of your development with YouTube and kind of, I mean, I've obviously I have a very different take on an interest in it because I'm, I'm doing some of that myself. So it's, but I'm interested to sort of see how you manage it and work with it. What, um, what does it mean to you? I started basically, yeah, by putting the camera up and playing for 30 minutes on the Seat Lombard. And that was the first time I really took YouTube seriously as something that I'm using, but that was mainly not for like, I want to get like so many viewers or something. It was just to have the feeling 
that I need to get better at improvising on my instrument. But I'm not doing that when I'm doing it without an audience because I just start making tracks and make another track and another track. So because that's the natural space that I'm in when I'm alone, making a track. So the camera helped as that audience thing. And those were basically the Weimar sessions. And that was the first series that I did. And I more people than I thought liked it. And then I started making more videos, more of my music, basically more of the tracks, and I filmed them, which also helped with the process of being in the moment and being in this this oceanic feeling, the flow state, you know? Because when you're just, you've got enough pressure that you're just doing this intuitive yet expert decisions all the time. So the camera helped in adding that pressure. And I trained myself to go into the flow state very fast. So that was basically my first time on YouTube was just music, film music and made that. And from then on it developed, I started putting my face in the videos because people wanted to know what my instruments are. I mean, this uh, uh, the, the Folktech Omnicord, a modded Omnicord by the company Folktech was something that I played a lot, but people had no idea about. They were not Nobody any nobody any nobody had written anything about it. There wasn't videos about it. And there was a question on Reddit on the Synthesizer Sub Forum. And uh they said, Yeah, what is this? And I said, Okay, uh hard to explain, I'm gonna show you. So I did a I don't know how long I filmed. I did a demo video of that thing. It was horrifying for me to do that. It was so stressful because yeah, just speaking in a not my native tongue, technical terms, and uh, yeah, trying to make it decent. That was so hard. And you see me at the end of that video, I had to go up on the balcony and had a glass of Uso just to do the the Abmoderation, the bye-bye. This is like yeah, yeah. too much. And then I saw... And then again, people liked that. So I thought, okay, I'll keep doing this. And I just used YouTube to, I thought of it as a way to document what I'm doing. So I filmed projects I had at the Bauhaus in uh, Dessau and I filmed theater projects. I, And then I talked more about techniques that I use, like how to, one of my most viewed videos is how to turn any tape recorder or reel-to-reel into a tape echo, which is a technique... Uh, ancient i think i picked that up from muff wiggler somewhere and i've uh, been using it for a long time to great effect but yeah so i made a video about that and so the price of tape players is now what it is so uh, <laughs> it's just something that that happened because i also <laughs> like to tell to take to do the thing to talk about techniques to uh so many people have access to them and make them better so that mm. technique can simply be improved by putting a digital delay in the signal path. So then you've got very speed anytime. So it's absolutely a, that people develop further on that. So that is something that I like doing and talking about those techniques. And at some point it became a thing. Uh, so where you, where I stopped posting so much music because I had like one music video and one talkie like at the high times and I couldn't keep up the pace all the time. And I also realized that putting up continuous all the time music, 
and also putting out albums would distract from the albums. So I tried to keep it more focused and I basically, I still do a similar amount of music, but I just embed it in the tracks. So I just embed it in the videos. Mm. So I work as long as I work on the videos, I always work on the music themselves. And uh, that's why, and then some of that ends up on albums, which is, which is absolutely, yeah, which is a nice way to go about things and hitting like many nails at the same time. And then how does you, you ask, how do I feel about it? Or what do I? Mm, I suppose I do. Yeah. Like how, how has it changed for you over the years? I mean, you must it's now. It's changed get... for me so much for the better right now, because I used to be very stressed, like this whole, like talking to the camera and like, it was very stressful in the beginning. And I, if in the early videos, you can see me like looking at the little screen instead of the lens, the camera mm. itself. So all this like amateur, because I never like took any classes. I just, just go with it, just do it fast, be done. So and I like to just jump in there. Uh, what camera, what's, what's a, what's a, what's a focal, what's a blah, what's, I have no idea about cameras. I just got a camera. So I just put it there. Focus. Oh, out of, ah, doesn't matter. It's slightly out of focus. Doesn't matter. Just do it. Uh, but now I feel I've, I've come to a point in the way that I, talk when I make videos where it's just something like, this is nice. I've got guests home, guests over here, and I'm talking to them in the studio and I'm showing them this thing and they're like, oh, this is interesting, cool. And I'm yeah. showing it. <laughs> so like basically hanging out with friends is kind of like the vibe that I really, I always wanted to go for, but that was hard because of the simple, yeah, difficulties of telling us telling something you know so you have to learn that and now i feel it's it's something i've i'm comfortable with and it's mm. not 100 takes of hi i'm heinbach it's good to have you back <laughs> ah hi i'm heinbach ha ha okay hi ah oh, no so I'm, it's not one that takes of that anymore and so it's just like yeah <laughs> welcome the i i too uh when I'm recording the intro to my videos, I have like probably six or seven hellos yeah. and kind of each one is different. Each one has its own sort of under and overtones, depending on how you interpret them. Yeah, because um, you want to be like a natural, like when you've got your, your I've got, I've got my, my trademark. It's like the same as the trumpet on the 21st, uh, 21st century Fox movie or like that roaring lion, something that established the ritual of we are here together. So, hi, I'm Heinberg. Good to have you back. The next thing, there can't be a cut, you know? There can't yeah. be a cut between that and uh, what I'm introducing. So, uh, if I have to repeat it, it has to flow. Mm -hmm. And that's where repetitions come in. And yeah, never and always to be straight and pure. And that's an exercise in being with yourself. <laughs> it's, it's like an exercise in mindfulness, I think also. So never to push something. I mean, the worst film I feel for myself that I can cut is when I feel I need to push something, which is so I tend to, that doesn't end up in the videos at all. So when I feel... That, 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 no, just relax, take a step back. And do you mean as in you forced, you're forcing yourself to be enthusiastic about something? Or do you mean that you're, there's something you're trying to say that you can't find the words for? Yeah, when I'm, it? sometimes, you know, you, I don't script my things. 
So I developed the script on the fly and then I realized, oh, I'm off on some tangent and I'm saying you something. totally never any bullet points or anything? A bullet point, maybe. So, but not like I, I tried scripting, didn't work for me, made me fit because I can't write as I sound, you know, mm. it's a skill in itself. I have to learn that. It I is. thought I don't have time to learn that. But so, do you then, do you not have a horrible edit? Because you've got loads of takes to like work through and find the good one and and you end up like, you know, Franken taking bits from one to the other. Yeah, the, the Franken taking is not so much that happens. Luckily, luckily, I, I'm always prepared to think, okay, in the end, I need to do the beginning anew. So that's something that's standard, right? Basically for any, anything anyway. But I often, luckily, I oftentimes don't have to. But the thing is, I, yeah, that is, of course, it's much longer. But I, but it's also nice that I just, I just know, okay, so where's, I can see by the waveform, you know, mm. <laughs> where it's like, okay, that's just starts. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Here we go. That's, that starts. So it's not that bad. And it's again, a similar thing to committing, you know? So I commit to this and also train myself in that way to, to be a better storyteller. And I can do that in front of an audience now also much better. That's why, for example, I hosted talks and moder hosted talks for Electron and stuff like that. Mm. And that's something that comes only through this repeated experience of telling a cohesive story through the camera. So I, I admire people that can just on YouTube that can just really tell the story completely. I mean, I don't know if it's scripted or not. I always believe it's just like off the cuff, which it's probably rare and rarely is, but I just love to think that that's possible. I think a lot of them have to be off the cuff. I, you know, yeah. speaking personally as well, like I, I can write bullet points. I, yeah. I gotten, I can semi get away with reading a script, but it's not easy. Um, yeah. Reading a script is the hardest of all things to do because the, the reality of YouTube is that what makes channels successful on YouTube is the personality. And mm. it, is a, it is a cult of personality in that sense. It's about the you and your, the audience connecting with you. It's the, um, there's even a phrase for I was reading or watching Parasocial. Parasocial. It is a parasocial relationship uh -huh. between the um, yeah the audience and you and 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 so if you're scripted, it feels fake. Like humans, are, we are so intuitive. We tone is everything. And I'm, I used to work in I sold gear and I worked in shops and well in a call center literally. And I would speak to people about their gear and what they wanted and talk to them. You're interested in this? Okay, well. A good solution will be this, this, or this, you know, and and I identified the people who were the best salespeople were always had a really nice tone of voice. Like mm -hmm. there was a real genuine warmth to them that they kind of put people at ease and people could connect to them. And there wasn't this feeling that you were being manipulated or mm -hmm. sold to and, and that kind of thing. And because, I mean, if you are doing your job correctly, you should be finding the right thing for someone and, and giving them a real reason that 
you know, is genuine. You can't, you don't have to, you don't need to fool people. And if you try and fool people, you know, they would return the equipment and be like, this was wrong. Like, I don't, I don't like this. So it's, it's interesting to see that sort of play out in YouTube is a meritocracy of person of, of those parasocial relationships. If you're genuine and, 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 and interested and interesting, then people kind of gravitate to it. But the, the key word in that is genuine is you have to be, you do, even if you're playing a character and I sense that, you know, you like me, you know, I'm when the camera's rolling, I, sometimes more than others will be kind of hamming it up a little bit because it's partly a performance as well. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and I get that sense from your, you know, your videos. It is, I don't think you're having met you. Well, I've met you once before in person and, and, you know, you are like that, but you're not, there's almost like a stage Heinbach that is, there's a, well, there's a Heinbach, you know, and there's a mm -hmm. Stefan obviously. And so it's interesting. I don't know if you're sort of, if that feels true to you or do you feel do you, you do uh, you are kind of playing with it and having fun and i think that because i think that also makes it fun do you know what i mean like if you're there has to be an element of performance because at the end of the day it's got to be interesting yeah definitely i mean on the whole like i know that i it's even but that's the same thing that i do on the phone and that is i talk deeper so yes. on the phone i talk that. deeper and on the microphone it's, i <laughs> use a microphone voice and uh, that's not uh, that's not something yeah i did it on the phone always and that's so probably a talk i talk i actually i talk like this <laughs> the bakery Hello, is, Stefan, this yeah. is my real <laughs> voice the rest is just an even tight h3000 uh, you no. carry around with you in person exactly like it's also the background hub no uh, but uh, no it's there's of course that element and there's some things that are almost yeah, ritualistic, like the beginning. And that's really, that gets me in the mood for doing the whole thing and gets the audience in the mood to yeah, listen to what I talk. Mm. So there is that, but I realized that, of course, there's the power of the edit in the end. And that's where it's basically talking about when I realized at some point, one thing that I, I always try to, back things up and sometimes there are tangents where I don't but I feel can I back this up can I say this directly is that true is it even true so no cut that cut that cut that so and uh, sometimes even like the whole premise of a video that I have while going in changes during that uh, mm. during the filming of it and then it's I earlier I said I have to redo the whole video now I would say I just no. I'm just gonna splice in something like myself at the editing thing and use all these techniques to show more of the process, you know, the process and to to unravel that little onion and uh, to yeah to basically less uh, less performance, more. But even though that again is a performance tool. So it's kind of like you always, we never, we're never off stage, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing as actors. Actors pretending to be uh, real people on stage are still actors and gonna be viewed in that way. So, yeah. Mm. My wife said recently, uh, sometimes when she watched, like I did a live show for the Magpie Pirates, that's you at your most relaxed. I said, yeah, so be more relaxed. <laughs> okay. 
And it took them to heart. Because you never seem uptight in these videos. No, I, but I was so real. I mean, like this, it, it could be a theoretically stressful situation with doing a live stream with multiple cameras, playing on five different pieces of things. But I thought, no, no, it's fine. If it fails, it's fine. It's everything is fine. Mm. Just we're here in the studio together and we're just just friends doesn't have to be yeah. anything else but i realized yeah that was i was so calm during that and uh yeah my wife said you have to be this calm also at home and with I said, the, okay, yeah. that life <laughs> right entire life i said yeah that's probably also the attraction that's why i love half speed i really want to be sometimes like everything at just life at half speed. Wow. Life at half speed. Yeah. I'm sure there's a there's probably some kind of narcotic that offers <laughs> life at half speed. <laughs> yeah. It's probably yeah. not a healthy thing. Yeah, but for the you thing to... is that narcotic will probably just double speed me. So yeah. everything appears at so uh, probably some kind of Ritalin or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I do remember do you ever watch Dexter's Laboratory, the cartoon? That was a uh, not was really. A, that was about Nickelodeon, uh, right? Yeah, there was an amazing episode where he had a headset that would make time move slowly, um, mm -hmm. which I always remember because he was like, I need more time in the morning to like get his homework done and stuff. But um, he would try and write on his homework, but it would go on fire because actually he was writing at like, uh. you know, 500 times faster, but the world for him, it was the same. Always loved Dexter's laboratory, mm -hmm. um, which actually, you know, your studio reminds me of, <laughs> of Dexter's lab. Yeah. I mean, um, it would be interesting to talk about, I mean, did you always use sort of, you're saying you used to like tour with the roads and what point did you, what was your first, like the one like slice of a knife into um, weird test equipment that you had? How did you, how did that begin? Into weird test equipment. I mean, the first, uh, the first time I was confronted with the idea was at university when we talked about I studied musicology and uh, there we talked about Stockhausen, Pierre Schaefer and all these things and uh, yeah that uh, there was a big uh, morgue uh, uh, and in the cabinet there was silicon graphics workstation so there was a lot of interesting kind of gear mm. around there because the professor was a collector and but no wrong thing not a collector because all these things were active and usable so they were there for the students to look into and that was when i heard of it and then i thought this is so interesting but it's pr probably impossible to try this even out <laughs> outside of a giant studio and then i got my first taste of it when i got berna from uh, cristoforo what is that? a berna with a burner it's oh, like a yes yeah yeah it was so, um a plug-in, wasn't it? A, was a plug-in, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you two versions now. I think there's Burner 2 now. And that takes a look at a classic electroacoustic studio. And hmm. then you can see all the parts. And I was like, ah, oh, this is... So this is how this is put together. Very interesting. I'm happy that I've got Ableton Live. So yeah, yeah. just this historical <laughs> thing. So God. it was very, very, very useful, very interesting uh, plug-in. And uh, yeah, to check out the whole workflow. And it can help even building your own <laughs> test equipment studio. But um, so, and then this, the first time I saw it for real, I think it was at Dennis Vershaw's studio in uh, the Waveform Research Center. 
So where is he the uh, chap who plays with? He's got a whole wall of there's a there's a fact or there's like a ten minute thing. With, is it him? Where it's, no, that's uh, at Willem Twee. So right. that's Albert Appe at Willem Twee, and uh, Willem Twee is a related studio. And Dennis for sure took some inspiration from Willem Twee and uh, Hans uh, Kolk. And uh, but the Dennis studio was basically it's very small space actually that's filled with stuff and it's full and it's mad and it's his place and uh, he's constantly making it better and better and working on it but i was there and i was like i was playing a show and uh, on my seat Lombard, and uh, then i was shown that studio and i was like okay this seems overwhelming and heavy and impossible <laughs> and impractical and that was it basically so that was for me. I didn't care about it. No, no, I didn't care about it. I thought this is this is no. This is oh, not, you are, this, this is doesn't work. Not, this good. is not me. No, Very responsible. Not, no, 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 doesn't make sense. But then, uh, then Dennis actually wrote like a bias guide. So he wrote a bias guide on the Waveform wow. Research Center um, Facebook, and I was okay, this seems very interesting. There was a lot of knowledge about instruments that I'd never even heard of that were interesting and uh, that went beyond like uh, what Stockhausen or anyone else had done. And uh, yeah, this took also notes from uh, uh, people from Dak Crowell, who's been active with this in the States for a long time and who's now also a very, very helpful member of the Heinbach subreddit. And... Uh, uh, composer and he had also um lot put out a lot of knowledge about that and then there's Willem Twe and uh, Atelier Tell Sonic where the website's about like using analog computers for music or part of that mm. and then Dennis basically condensed everything into this bias guide about stuff that he had and that he collected over the past I don't know eight years or something I was piked my curiosity and I was like this is very interesting and I started looking at things and of course nothing on that list was easily available mm. because yeah it's all like super rare stuff and I just thought ah come on let's just try it I mean I've got the I, I can always say I'll make a video and it will be fun and uh, then I bought a Rode and Schwarz uh, RF generator just a sign generator and that was my first thing that I bought. It was so heavy that I had to take a taxi and I couldn't take it on my bike, which I had stupidly brought. So, um, yeah, so I got that and that later turned into fundamental, the synthesizer, uh, not the mm. uh, synthesizer instrument uh, that I built with uh, Sonic Lab. But plug-in. Yeah, yeah. plug-in, exactly. And uh, then I, there's still like the first video where I said, I'm never going to fill up more than this space. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a tiny corner that I look at. It. Like, this, this I mean, by, by owning two back. to three of these items, you're, you're filling most sort of rooms, it seems. Yeah, there's like, more than two small. or three here now. <laughs> <laughs> is that why you're it's, so small in my video frame? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, you have to be to... Stuff is just, uh, I, I, I made myself smaller so I can have more stuff in here. That's no. very wise. Yeah, it's Shrink really yourself wise down choice. in order to fit more test equipment. Yeah. But then it, no, but that's just crazy. I mean, it just grew and grew and grew because I found stuff suddenly and that's made stuff, it's stuff that sounded so good. And there's the double beauty of discovering something that has never been used for music, using it for music 
and uh, you're again both the musician and the explorer and mm. that was really special so i've been really 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 on the hunt for things that are interesting and i just got like i, I tried to calm down really because it's simply i'm at the absolute maximum everything is absolutely maxed out so only when i find something really special now like i found an exact 202 uh additive synthesizer which could potentially be super cool because it uses a bunch of sine wave to generate complex signals so it looks like a reverse fourier uh synthesizer mm. Uh, like a Fourier synthesizer, basically. So that could be super interesting. And I hope it is and doesn't only go beep and <laughs> well, have you just got, are you goes get, up and smoke. Do you get these things sent? How do you get them if they're big, heavy objects? From a practical yeah, standpoint. You get by paying a lot of stupid money to FedEx and DHL and all that stuff. I might need to pick up. I, I want to buy some really, really big Sirwin Vega speakers. Because okay. I, I want... I want some vibey speakers for my future studio. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've got some really good Genelecs for transparency and accuracy, but I want some speakers that are decidedly not, and they're going to be big and heavy. So mm -hmm. I, need, I might need to speak to you about how we, how we get really heavy objects, especially things that are delicate, like speakers, like surely test equipment is just, it needs to be packed so well, otherwise it will just, it's surely full of valves and just the kind of thing that just should never be shipped. I've got stuff like that was like there was there's one auction house in England uh, from whom I bought and they just put three things like each of them like 20 kilos uh, in a box <laughs> and basically created a test equipment shaker like I was like what have you done and they were like no it's supposed to look before like that I was they were really horrible about that so those are a company I'll never never use again. Wow. But what was, what was the company? Just uh, I'm not oh. gonna say on video. I okay. don't want to be too like, professional. Yeah, yeah, not. But it was really bad. So, okay. um, yeah. So, but they do a lot of stuff for BBC. But English stuff. people, that's the problem with. Ah, uh, no, it was really it was horrible shipping. And from the US, usually it's like properly shipped, and they use also they are insured by the eBay program for blah blah blah. Mm. international sending and yes but it's always a gamble when you take something really delicate for and ship it overseas so mm. luckily most test equipment is built like the proverbial tanks especially german stuff by rode and schwarz wandel and goldermann that's like all the tubes are individually sealed you know so it's crazy good how uh how protected the stuff is mm. and uh I even got a, that's the last biggest thing. And that was a gift uh, from a viewer and uh, that cost me shipping and the shipping was <laughs> $600, but it still like was so worth it. I still got to do a video on it. It's a, a tape recorder by Hewlett and Packard. Right. And it can be controlled with an external oscillator. It has eight tracks and it, is just wild it has like all the speeds it can go forward and playback and forward and reverse so basically this is one of those things that's an instrumentation recorder so you've got fm modulated modules and you've got standard audio modules so you can have fm modulated outputs so you can record like vibrations you know so you can record cv on this 
So this wild. is such a wild instrument and it's so good. It's such a great sound design tool. So What's that's it something called? just to, to increase the value on eBay. Oh, that's the oh god, let me check. It's the Maybe HP. We've well, got it now so you can tell everyone what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh Where's the name? The number. Uh, okay. 3 HP 3984 Catch it. Sorry. 3968A instrumentation recorder. 3968A instrumentation recorder. Yeah, they're pretty impossible to find. I know Tony from Soundgas wants one. So, ah, well, yeah. you have to pay you pay you for it. The, no, oh, look at that, look at that. It looks like a reel-to-reel -reel with lots of very tempting buttons. On the yeah, bottom. I mean, look at the they speeds nice, on the though. buttons. Ooh, this look can go glacial. So <laughs> this is stuff that's meant basically to record stuff and then look at it on oscilloscopes and yeah. So it was, so, it was a device designed for like computers, like big computer, like the management of data input to a old school computer was that no what it was not for? really it's not for that but it uses that stupid ampex data tape yeah that's right. the tape it's calibrated for and that stuff sheds so oh. so it just like you put it on and why is it not recording oh because all the tape is on the floor like in dust <laughs> black goo it's horrible four six seven tape is just uh so i'm i'm using just uh regular tape with it because this is an experimentation machine sound design machine to do all that it's, it's, not a it's actually recording. got rack mount ears on it as well, which is wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's designed the, to the joy of just playing back something so quickly. And of course, you can do stuff like, I think, I haven't tried it yet, but you can record basically an oscillator on there and then use that recorder to control the tape speed itself. So you can have the machine self-play, oh self-decide its speed. <laughs> and you can program it via this HP GIB protocol. So you can code it to play back and stuff like that. There's someone selling one for $800. Oh. This was for parts or not working. Yeah, that's ago. probably, that's hard. But I think it's something that can be said. I know, I know, like they can be completely messed up because this is like stuff that was also a heavily used. I mean, once this was in the lab, this was on regular use. Yeah. So, and oftentimes they were serviced, but then the time came when they weren't serviced anymore. So much of this has been standing around forever. Mm. And yeah, the, the viewer that I got it from uh, uh, was absolutely, she was amazing in that. So she had completely fixed the machine up and it was... Uh, yeah, it worked perfectly. I was so happy. But good friend to have. That's that's amazing. And not a trivial skill like that anyone picks up. No, no. Really, really good. It's such mm. a I'm, I'm still I still have like explored like uh maybe ten percent of that machine just by taking I just basically used it now to remix old tracks and just put on old tapes and play them at really slow speeds, record that mm. again played backwards at a really slow speed and suddenly magic happens. So, yeah. Hmm. How do you know, I mean, when you've got this studio full of gear, how do you keep it usable? What's your sort of, do you have any tricks to sort of ensuring that you don't get overwhelmed by the amount of options that you have? I think it's called 
compartmentalization, something like that. <laughs> I've like heard about this. Putting everything into small little compartments. So basically, for example, uh, here right next to me is a station that's basically self-contained. So there's a mixer, a four track, uh, two synthesizers and a drum machine and uh, a few pedals and uh, little make noise, no coast, Strega, mm. um, and what's the other thing? No control modular setup. Yeah. So I've got all these contained and down here, there's a very tiny little test equipment rack with <laughs> four modules, which are amazing. And the small cork SQ1 to sequence them. So this, I can just use this to make complete tracks. And yeah, have all the things like little yeah. bits, ingredients of things that I love. <laughs> so it's all there. I like that. Yeah. And it's just one part of the studio. Then I've got a whole station over there that's basically built on a Rhodes, Juno 60 and SH02. And a tier 606 that keeps heavily bleeping. <laughs> and an SQ1, again, always SQ1. I put, I put these things everywhere. And uh, this is, again, I, this completely can work on its own because it all goes into the mixer. And then I've got on my mixer, mixing desk, it's now all processing. There's so many bandpass filters and test equipment filters. That's lovely. My live setup, again, another compartmentalized thing. And my modular. And my modular now is next to the piano. And I run the modular through a gong speaker, like E-Wave Metallic. And the modular inst instantly becomes an acoustic instrument in the room. So I play oh, nice. to an acoustic instrument in the room uh, with the piano. And then I've got the other a small, like one of my favorite synthesizers of last year, the Sapermonicon. Yeah. And that goes straight into the mixer. When I say straight, it goes through phaser. <laughs> Everything goes through phasers now. So, uh, and I've got this and I can just sit there and I don't know why I haven't done it, but I feel I could make five records there, just piano and modular. It's just there. It's, it's my happy corner. Mm. And so do, these Do you record all... the modular through mics, through the speakers? Or do yeah. you... You do. Yeah. There, I put like a ribbon mic in the gong behind the gong speaker, so it's also out of sight. It's always mic'd, and then nice. it also runs into the mixer, so I can process it again. And sometimes I keep like I keep the the studio speakers on, so there's like little resonances happening, and then I play. And I with the the downside to that technique is that I can only use like three modules or something at the time before it gets too overwhelming. But that's also the plus side. So I only use three <laughs> modules. Huh. I like that. Yeah. Uh, the compartmentalization, I think, is the most responsible way to manage having far too much equipment. Yeah. Because the very you. idea of trying to use it all at once is just nonsense. Like, That's absolutely. That. I mean, sometimes I, I tr sometimes I've, I've got half of it running at the same time, maybe, but not everything ever. Hmm. And now I built like a new station <laughs> in the living room. Oh, wow. You'll be uh, popular at home. Yeah, that's but because it's uh, I I got a search system in the Ross Lamont case. Oh, so oh dear, yeah, oh dear, Be it's beautiful. So that's why. Be okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's why it's allowed in the living room. I I own the uh, the Odyssey, the white um, Korg Arp Odyssey, okay. which was that was it was decreed that that might be an object that could be allowed to come out of the studio at some point because nice. it was. <laughs> Yeah, it but, has that look of brawn, sort of brawny test equipment-y sort of look yes. to it. 
But the good cream. thing is our living room is basically like a former gallery space. So it's already oh. very industrial and it looks very industrial in there. So everything is okay. like these metal shelves and yeah. So it's, it's, and anyway, there's like basically all my toy pianos there also already. <laughs> so it's <laughs> weird gallery that you've got. Yeah, this yeah. is definitely contributing to the mythos of sort of Berlin as the sort of haven for sort of arty types where, you know, you all live in galleries <laughs> Actually, and you probably do, pay yes. like five euros a month for your rent and it's just incredible. And uh, you know, the like, gallery space contract is from like originally 1986 or something. Wow. And you're only allowed to raise it by 10% according to law. So that's actually, that part of the house is very cheap. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You do actually live in a gallery, basically. There is a yeah. Now we've got the gallery space. Yeah, it's there. Right, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I wish I had that space. Mm. I will have space eventually, mm. but the United Kingdom is—I don't know. It feels like the a lot of the building depends where you go. A lot of our buildings are very short ceilings, though. You know, and I can see you've got a very high ceiling wherever you are. It is very high. So the ceiling here, like, uh, I mean, we're on the first floor, on the ground floor, which is always a bit tough in a city, but uh, the ceiling is super high. And now I've got, I, my, that's why my studio is in pieces because I had acoustics installed mm. and there are all these big bass trap clouds here. And it doesn't take away anything from the feeling of size from the room, which is nice. So they mm. just white floating there looking weightless because they're on these little chains. And uh, there was something I was worried about that the room would look cramped. It just looks more like a spaceship now. So oh, that's ideal. Yeah, kiss your ears, they're called uh, with the company. Very Kiss uh, your ears. Kiss your great ears. Great name. Yeah. Berlin company, really nice. So amazing. Yeah. The um yeah. Do you have those Philips Hue bulbs in there? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I can tell you you've got a kind of in a sort of warm purple yeah, vibe to you right now which is like it's nice i i've been uh my colleague uh alex who i work with has been talking about those phillips bulbs and i'm kind of i'm convinced i've I've already bought like the the ambience ones that change but i want to get some color changing ones that uh bo beats guy has got a load of those <laughs> colored bulbs to, he said he he i mean i'm probably I, I'm relaying in private information, but he was like, I've spent over 800 euros on Philips Hue bulbs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Dude. They're so expensive. I mean, I I think I got them I got them only when I had like a, a, guy to, I got a gift card. Oh. I got a gift yeah. card for Amazon for, I think it was something that I did, uh, or like, uh, like a thing I helped Patreon with. Mm. So, and they gave me a gift card. And then I said, okay, so now I can afford three bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> And I bought, immediately gift card went to three Philips U bulbs and uh, it was been really worth it. I mean, it's just so nice. I just put it my phone because it's just so nice to just go to a different color and be like, oh, ah, I'm still Oh dumb. my God, he's gone red. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've upset. I've angered him. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or something's on blue. fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just, ah, and then you can do all these mixtures and you have got Nordic lights and they can just move now. Can they move? Can I they do think. like a kind of yeah? Now they're moving like disco thing. Small, not, I haven't tried disco yet because I'm even though I'm dancing like I've been making a lot of dancey music in my studio, mm. but I haven't done disco lighting. 
but I felt moved to make disco music because yeah, I miss going out. <laughs> so do you, are you a dancer? Like, I met you the first time I met you and the only time I met you was in a club. Yeah, when we, you told we me that dance. you had a dream about me. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we didn't yeah, exactly. I remember that. Yeah, yeah but we we didn't dance. We we drank we drank beer at the bar. We did. Yeah, I mean, I danced late. I think but I didn't ah, see okay. you. I didn't see you cutting a rug, as they say. But I, that's yeah. perhaps because you were cutting a rug so fast, and that I just couldn't detect your. You were just moving faster than the speed of light. No. The, no um, but are you do you do you go out in in Berlin and obviously the amazing there is an amazing club scene and the techno scene and do you get involved with that? Not so much because basically when I moved to Berlin, I had like on the last day was before in Hamburg and there had met my future wife, mm. so she moved in with me really quickly and uh, our first child happened also really quickly. Oh. So I really missed out on the whole Berlin club experience, Dang. like just a few times, like Panorama Bar, Berghain, and a few clubs before, and uh, like uh, about playing Renate and stuff like that. But really not much, simply because, yeah, with kids, first one and then another one, and my constant traveling for work and uh, uh, for music, there wasn't much time to go clubbing. Mm. That's a shame. I suppose the one thing I know about Berlin clubs is that they're open basically 24 hours a day. So I suppose, as a, you know, if you've been up with the kids all night and you put, you finally get them to go to bed, then you can just head out to the club while, you, you know, while your wife sleeps at home. That yeah. would be, go out. It's people going out at six o'clock in the morning and leaving at six to spend the day. Yeah, yeah. And then coming to bed at nine and going to sleep, you know, coming home. That to me is like the... The shifting of, of when people go clubbing is, is so alien to me. Like that's just, but it seems like a very practical and normal thing in Berlin. I didn't, I know that, 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 that is something that happens. I know a friend of mine's that did it, but it wasn't really for me. Mm. So yeah, no, I, I go mm. to a lot of, I used to, when I was shows, I used to go to shows and stuff and, but, or put on shows and stuff like that. But yeah. The Not whole so like it's it's like something you, I feel like it's so destructive to because the night can quickly get so long and then you're done for the whole weekend. So like that's something mm. I can't like do with yeah I, I couldn't yes. do with kids. Doesn't, the older I not get, I'm definitely finding that thing of if I stay up too late, right? Which happens frequently because you know if you've not got up early. You've stayed up late to do something creative and mess around with, with gear or whatever. And if I go to sleep late, I, I I am starting to notice I can't function the next day. I'm like, oh no, age age has has sort of is taking away that that sort of stolen time. Um, but I the other thing on the flip side is on the occasions I've been able to do it, I've gone to sleep early enough. Actually, getting up early. Is very productive, I find, but but this for me is because I'm blending a day job and trying to do these things. Whereas I know that you're, you know, you obviously have work, work, but you know, I don't know how you manage the whole YouTube and music career thing. Like, how do you compartmentalize those things, and how do you how do you not let it drive you completely mad? That's a good question, and something I'm constantly writing. It's like <laughs> really every time, like I mean. I've gotten horribly bad at answering emails, for example, simply because I, I can't. So simply, uh, 
it's so difficult to get like some to, to get back on time with bigger things because when I've got a day to record a video, for example, I need that time. I need that headspace. I can't do anything else. When I've got a track to write, I need that time. I need that space. I can't do anything else. So I need to plan in business days. And those are basically like maybe once a week where I get to all the questions and do all the promo and all the A and Bs and all the stuff, all the answering, all the communication. But then it's a week of quiet for me because I can't, I can't. It's just mm. not possible to keep up, especially with kids and lockdown and kids at home. So I try to just say it's fine. It's fine. It just has to be fine. So it goes totally against everything that I'm that I feel like I would normally do, but I have to say it it is just fine. Mm. So and it's always a struggle. I mean, as um, today I went to my uh, accountant, and then I that was three hours there and being asked what's this, what's this, what's this, which is really difficult now. Like all the accounting <laughs> is like a nightmare. What's so, this thing like, you've bought? <laughs> yeah, what is this? What is the, what does this mean? And then you realize, like, when you buy something on eBay, that it suddenly becomes like three different payments to two different things, and it's like, what? Okay, yeah, because international, and it's a very cutting edge accounting what they have to do there in the end. And uh, so then, but then it took half an hour to walk basically through the park where Superbooth is and the yeah. snow so just to walk that and then uh, take a taxi home from uh from like that spot after those half hour of walking the snow and that reset me and gave me like mm. Ooh, okay this is good so that's some things i always need to put in like these little nature things because yeah too much inside makes crazy and gives <laughs> makes me lose the sense of perspective so absolutely and yeah but i also decided that it's fine to not do a video, for example, every week. So it's fine to take a break when it's like that. So when I shot something that's halfway finished, I'm, it's fine, it's okay, it doesn't have to be that day. I don't have to like feed every Monday at the same time everything. I'm just gonna be, no, this thing, this thing, this thing. And now since I've gotten into developing software and instruments, plugins, there's another new job that's come up <laughs> so and that also takes time and is uh demanding hmm tell me about the uh landfill totems hmm. which is your new album um oh, that's that's an album and a library exactly so uh a while ago i took like i had assembled a bunch more of test equipment that that I could that I could put up in my home. So because buy cheap, buy a lot, and then see what works and if it even does. So I had a lot of stuff that didn't make sense in the musical context of the instrument that I'm building inside my studio. And I didn't know what to do with it. And then I got asked by a gallery, P and DT Art Gallery, if I want to make a residency at that space. And I thought, oh that's a good idea. I can keep buying more stuff and just put it in the gallery. <laughs> that's wow. <laughs> that's Little what, did they know what they enabled. <laughs> that's what I did. And um, then together with Darren of Patchpoint, who, uh, who asked if he wanted to co-exhibit with me, uh, I said, yeah, let's, 
get a van and get everything over there. We got a van, got my stuff, got his 10 tape machines. And we came to the, to the place, pulled out everything. And I thought, this is a big space. How am I going to fill that with my stuff? So because I had really no idea what exactly I was going to do in that space. Only that there would be a performance of some kind. But what performance? No idea. Nothing. Nothing was uh, basically fixed. So I started to put up these things one by one. So I put one thing on the other and one thing on the other and suddenly it became this humanoid robot multi-faced thing because there's so many faces in test equipment. Like there's two knobs and then there's a little light and that already makes like a little nose or a little mouth and <laughs> eyes and test equipment starts looking at you. It's like one of those AI uh, scanning Uh, pictures where everywhere is eyes and stuff like and faces so the human mind tries to construct these very quickly into figures and within half an hour i had the first one built and i was like this is the way forward this looks cool it looks big in the space and it looks dangerous because i didn't fix anything i just piled it up high <laughs> and it wobbled when you passed it so there was a sense of imminent danger. You could be crushed by something like that. They were up to two meters high. So yeah, I built three of those and uh, I felt like, wow, this is like markers of a time gone by because this is high-end equipment that was used for, the, for launching rockets into space. <laughs> this was used for medicine. This was really, really important equipment. And now it's just... Yeah, would end up in a landfill. This is stuff no one needs anymore. No scientist needs this. I'm repurposing that. So I decided to call them landfill totems because A, of the look, and B, because totem for me means, it's like I took this, uh, the, the, like this sociological sense of totems, like um, it's a marker of something. So it marks like a different time. So here is the past and Here is uh, the here's the now, and this shows this decline of this high technology and what used to be fantastic and expensive, and now it's repurposed and it sings and lives again, and yeah, built these three totems and then I patched them together and started playing them and I made a live performance which is on my channel and it's really fun because I don't think anybody expected what would come out because it turned out that you, these things can do pretty harsh techno which is absolutely absolutely a surprise for me at that time and it just was very powerful because everybody sitting around these three weird things where I was basically playing them by with a mixer like dub techniques it was a magical moment for me so mm. Then these, then after that gallery run, they were supposed to be exhibited at Ableton Loop, but then Corona happened. So nothing happened with the totems for a while. Then Darren said, let's put them up at Patchpoint. And around at that time, uh, Spitfire Audio approached me and said, hey, do you want to work on an artist instrument? An artist instrument is something that they do where they take like something that's typical for the sound of the artist and put that in a library format and also release an album around that. And I thought, I love the idea and I've got the perfect thing for that because these totems were meant to sing and now they don't. So this is a way to make them live again 
to bring them to people to hear them and to yeah to give the to give them the sounds to play them themselves i thought that was absolutely the perfect thing to do to also conserve these because these things kept dying on me while i was playing on them because i of course didn't recap them i didn't recap the power supply i didn't do all these things because the whole thing about test equipment music for me was buy something cheap that's awesome and then play it and if i had factored in like repairing because i'm not sam i'm not looking on a computer you can repair <laughs> these things like really fast i can't do that i've got no idea how to and but if i factored in like tech costs suddenly these things would be so expensive again and uh yeah so these things kept dying and there was always the smell of like uh, also when i building the when i was recording the totems at patchpoint for the library like there's one song which is the title song well, not the title song but one of the the single the first single that comes out funktionsverlust meaning loss of function and that's literally the sound of uh tectronics oscillator a complex oscillator dying so <laughs> i was wondering oh this makes such a gorgeous sound it sounds like it's playing a little it was really what is it doing there it's lovely and i recorded that song and i was like uh uh it's like hey this was really nice this was felt really good and then uh i think darren said something smelling here and i was like what yeah oh Oh, okay. okay. So exactly that oscillator had died. <sighs> and, swan uh, song, as they yeah, say. Swan song. It's the swan song of that instrument. So this library and album is, um, it's like, yeah, it's a song for the for the for for these from these instruments, and also like maybe their last one. Who knows what happens with them? Uh, right now they're disassembled downstairs in the cellar. And uh, I don't know whenever a gallery will open again and if I can show these again, which would be absolutely lovely. They would have to be new because, yeah, I would have to change them with new parts and stuff. But, yeah. And I basically recorded a whole album at Patchpoint and we were still waiting for Corona like measures to like be lax so there could be people. Never happened, so nobody saw them except for like... Uh, one like we did a no touch version of the totems where you could play them through Seattle Lombard. So the Seattle Lombard has a Deerhorn organ, which is a basically like Peter Blass's um, advanced theremin, but that can be also used as a no touch audio mixer. So we could put it in there. We could have two people in the room. They could basically play the sounds from the totems and pan them in space so they could play the performance. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that was a lovely way to have them, like at least for some people to see them and play them. Yeah. But now, yeah, Spit, I, I, and every time I had recorded a track, I would then deep sample everything that I did and go further. And then basically I started with day one and then <laughs> I would record all these sounds and then I would give them to Spitfire basically to do whatever they thought would best because I really trusted them in doing and doing the best that they can to make these sing and the library. I just, there's so much in there where I just, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to press one, one note on the keyboard. Okay. Done. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is just like what they, suddenly they also program stuff in the rhythms there because that's one thing that's difficult with the totems because I didn't put any complex uh, rhythm programmers in there uh, 
because those are all in my studio, is to make beats that are non that are more than just pulses, and uh, they programmed some beats on those pulses that remind me of UK Garage, and I was like, what? And still had this kind of like Pan Sonic means UK Garage. Yeah. I was like, this is what are you? This is mad. I love it. I love it. And I took some time, like, if you uh, uh, if you look at that uh, library, I wrote, like, little metadata. I wonder how much of they kept that in. So to every patch, there's, like, my <laughs> my description of what they made. <laughs> and I had a ton of fun doing that. Uh, yeah. So, and the library now basically uh, has um, four totems, four landfills there, and they're called Kling which is means in German to sound. Then it's got Klang, which means the sound. And then it's got uh, Knarz, which is a genre of techno. And then we've got Krach, which are the, the drums. And these together are basically the ensemble that you can play and with the different functions. Yeah, so is this that? is the library and the album is very dark. It's like the darkest piece of music that I ever recorded because <laughs> it was completely under the under in the high time of uh, Corona and uh, I hope that was the high time. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope. Good grief. None of us so, know if that's true. And yeah. like also, especially not even that, it was also the the right of the, of, uh, the right. So of IFD in Germany and all the and Trump and all that stuff. So all the titles are in German and they're all, yeah, they're all about. Uh, they read like a movie about some sort of disaster. Huh. It's a very dark album, and I love it for that because it's very pure in its darkness. And it's the second dark album that I released this year after I just put out Schwebungssommer which is uh, also a test equipment album and that explores that dark side and just goes further in that. And yeah, it feels good like after very hopeful albums like Assertion and uh, Light Splitting to go to different places to, mm. to say no hope anymore. <laughs> yeah. No one blames you for that, I think. Yeah. And I think that you are, to use another word, tapping into the zeitgeist. So that very much mm -hmm. is the, is a sense of melancholy. I mean, it's just a sense of desperation, I think. That mm -hmm. Where can this go? I mean, we, you know, we are all staring down sort of like no one's going, and it sounds so trivial, like no one's going on holiday, but I mean, no one's been on holiday for like a year and a bit. And and no one's, it's that sense of not having a break, that oppressive, the walls are mm -hmm. sort of coming in on you. And I think, I think if there's, there is a sort of collective feeling, it's that, you know, mm -hmm. which is what that music speaks to. Definitely. The walls are coming in. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the things are going to like collapse on me yeah. in some way, shape or form. So um, we th I think we should sort of move to a, a final question. Um, which is a question that I ask everyone, but for you, I think like Sarah Devachi, I think it has to be a slightly modified version. Because the question is, what is the future of music technology? But you're not a person who is exploring necessarily the future. And so the what? question is, 
I am. Well, you are, but what I mean is... I'm building is, instruments. Of course. Yeah. But if you're building a, a instruments out of, like, nuclear equipment from the 1960s and 70s... Oh, then, you don't know to, what's to come. When does this oh, air? Oh, well, two, three months, maybe. Why? Oh. What can you tell me? Oh, then I can tell you, like... So what I love is, like, taking ideas... I take ideas from the past and make them new. So together with the developers, that's important to say, because uh, something like Fundamental, which takes stuff that could be used at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, it was used in a similar format, and then adds on the compositional level the possibilities, adds stochastic and adds stuff that Xenakis did. And that puts it already like that's something new that hasn't been done before. It takes notes from the past. And then, of course, you've got it like on your iPad. And mm. this is not an instrument that's basic, that's from the past. It's an instrument that's utterly new. So, and the sounds that it creates and the rhythm that it creates, because the sheer movement, musical possibilities make it new. And then uh, there is this new thing. Again, this is something that takes inspiration from the past. And that's something that I'm, that, oh, that will be, really, that is, uh, we, we're talking the past now, so I don't know past tense but that will come out hopefully before and that's uh called i'm doing that with audio thing and that's called um motors and this is based on the crystal palace that was used in the bbc radiophonic workshop which was a 16 input one out uh, switcher controlled by a motor so you could take 16 audio sources and run through them with a the motor speed up speed down boop. So that's a super fast multiplexer with the motor as a driver. And right now, the <laughs> I don't know if this happened or not because all projects might fail. Uh, Sam is building that, the Lokomotor computer is building that thing in real life oh again. And we've built a little software version of that that again takes, uh, that's a sidechain, uh, <laughs> a sidechain tremolo so you take two signals and blend them into each other really easily, any signals on that you find. And that's such a, I don't know. It's for me, this has the future aspect to it by looking at the past because the past is in many ways an unexplored country. And there are new ideas to be found there all the time. And again, Motors takes this concept of a simple switch and uses an LFO. And suddenly you've got this very simple, in, but to my knowledge, new in a door way of blending signals that works fine. And then you've got the motor simulation that does a ramp up and ramp down. So it, <sighs> it has 16 ins and it's like a, so it's a bit like a, not a sequential switch where a sequential switch would shift all of the inputs to the outputs or, well, no, it wouldn't necessarily. Yeah. Sequential no, no. switch could have four outs and one in on, and one in and four outs. And so it's that idea that you're, you know, you're selecting from lots of sources and yeah, you think the interesting crossfade between yeah, and the them. thing yeah, it's like in the original, it's just a switch. So it is yeah, like it the different sequential off, switch. But I think the nice thing about it is that like, uh, that's, I haven't heard that original instrument. I just read about it. Like I was pointed to about that thing by a viewer uh, under a video of, uh, I think it was wires. And I said, well, this is very interesting, just the idea. And to have it controlled by a motor makes it even more interesting because then you've got all the delays of the motor and that again creates a nice movement. So 
this is uh, in this whole like the future I feel is the whole future part is like the whole process you know you've got like Sam doing it on his YouTube channel again rebuilding trying this to build this in uh, in a hardware unit me working with audio thing on a plugin version that takes it further but also simplifies it it's not a 16 in it's just two ins to make it simple across all the platforms and then this all get broadcast via youtube basically so you've got the whole thing where it's learning about history and then creating something new from that i don't know for me the the future is always rooted in the past i think that's the whole summing up of this and the, similar to the totems there are things that are rooted somehow in the past but also are in the way that the whole thing came together the way th this thing is presented and the way this thing ends up as a library and an instrument that people can play and is again very futuristic because the sounds it doesn't sound old that's the, not, the crazy thing this stuff doesn't sound old it just sounds powerful and that's kind of the the difference so if you were, if i were to sum it up the future is in the future is in the past maybe <laughs> just, <laughs> just <laughs> off the cuff no the thing is it's yeah i always like to think that everything is rooted in something for me the whole process of everything right now i mean that musicians would use youtube as a way to promote their music and then create instruments and then start talking about the instruments that they use and then start making these instruments into software instruments i feel like this is all a very modern progression <laughs> i don't know at what point in time we had something like that i think this is the first time that i found an answer to that question what is the future of music and st something like that that's so hard to answer because it's something that is how would you say it's it asks also what are you doing now you know and suddenly you feel like under under a light and see like is what you're doing futuristic or what is it is it is it future is it future proof i don't know you know there's sort of that element to that and i I kind of like I'm a history fan and uh, history was like uh, one of my most favorite subjects in school and I read a lot of history books and the one thing that I learned from that is like everything is so connected and everything grows out of everything you know every time I make a new connection to something in history I'm excited like a reissue album of music that for example is electronic in the year 1960 we can go to the radiophonic workshop for that uh, we can go to Africa for that, or we can go to many different countries and see there are stuff that people did that just didn't go anywhere further. Or like the Soothing Sounds for Babies albums. They just, okay, this is ambient music before there was ambient music. There's all these things that are to be discovered. And once you connect them to the history, you realize how much... How, how rich everything is, how rich the soul of the human experience is.
Nice. A little sigh at the end. I think we uh, we ring absolutely every last thought from awesome, awesome Stefan. And thank you, Stefan, so much for your time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and those who identify via any other. That is Heinbach. What a good dude. He is a very, very fun person to talk to. And, and like I say, a warm, fuzzy conversation. I ensured that I put a little bit of a UAD uh, 610A on my voice just to kind of give it that slightly more sort of like vintage edge. But yes, that whole thing about it being kinesthetic or like having kinesthesia, like well, synesthesia, but like I like to say like kinesthesia because he feels textures in his fingers. How absolutely wonderful and amazing is that? And also that concept that ties into it of taking just brutal bandpass filters in order to pick out the sounds, the music in just any sound that you may possibly be listening to. That you can discover melodies, you know, in just noise with bandpass filters. It's just a wonderful and gorgeous concept. Like it's just there you just have to take everything else away so that you can actually focus on it. Absolutely wonderful thought uh, and something that we can all apply. So get get processing, process to process and discover what you can find in just noise. Thank you, Stefan, for the time that you gave chatting to me and please buy Heinbach's music. You can find it at Heinbach Music with a K dot com and of course Bandcamp and there you can find the Landfill Totems album which is gorgeous and many other wonderful records that you can bathe in of course it also we mentioned this like Spitfire library well that is now out there is a Spitfire library called Landfill Totems which is £29 and contains amazing sounds that are playable as an instrument it's like it's a VST plugin you know of Heinbach as it were uh, so you would be mad not to check that out. And then the other things just to mention are his plugins. Um, Heinbach has obviously been working with uh, developers to create um, sort of, yeah, interesting, curious software. And there is this amazing app, Gauss, G-A-U-S-S. You can find that on the App Store. We mentioned that. That is a, like a looper, which is based on kind of like tape loop concepts so it's like you've literally got a tape looper in your iphone amazing so you could be anywhere in fact we mentioned that on the hannah peel podcast and hannah was like oh i've got to check that out well gauss g-a-u-s-s field looper turn your phone into a tapey vibey looper that you can just use on the bus um absolutely awesome and then the other plugins were like you know, quote unquote, proper VST instruments and AU plugins, which are made by audio thing. There is wires and there is things. Uh, motor 
And this is the sort of side-chaining kind of rotor-motor combiner. <laughs> really, really bonkers. And it's sort of interesting take on side-chaining, you know, with motor inertia built into it. And then wires, which is based on um, Soviet wire recorders. Um, so just like ultra-lo-fi gorgeous echoes and, you know, vibes to put in your DAW. So check those out. Check out his music. Um You'd be mad not to. Amazing, interesting, cool tools. Second only to the Hokey Cokey. That is what we are all about. Please do listen to the other podcast, BTW. There is an amazing episode just last with Hannah Peel. Crazy, amazing Hannah Peel. Valhalla DSP surgeon Sarah Devachi. We've had a lot of amazing guests on here and there's lots more interesting conversations if you've not heard them already. Thank you to our sponsors. They are SignalSounds.com, TinyCrushMixing.com. Remember that Tiny Crush have a limited 10% deal, so TinyCrushMixing.com. And of course, Skillshare. Check out the link in my description to get some free learning. Lastly, a final plug for my Patreon. Yes, it is Patreon.com forward slash Mylar Melodies. If you would like to contribute to the running of the PCAST and the videos that I make on YouTube, please consider hopping on the Good Train Patreon and sponsoring. That would be massively appreciated. And with that, I think it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for your attention. It was good to have you back. And we'll see you next time. Bye.